Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our transfigured Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What a difference a week can make. It was only six days earlier at Caesarea Philippi that St. Peter had made his great confession, and he'd also given and received great rebukes. And now Jesus leads his closest disciples up the slopes of a high mountain and is transfigured before them. A week earlier, the Holy Spirit was working within him. St. Peter had confessed of Christ, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For that brief moment, he was seeing clearly. But then Jesus begins to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Peter's rational mind did not like this. This wasn't the sort of Christ he was looking for. This wasn't the outcome that he wanted from God. Peter thought that he knew better than the Creator what he and all the other human beings needed. So Peter pulled Jesus aside and he told the Son of the living God that he was somehow mistaken. The fishermen rebuked the one who had separated the waters from the waters and made them teem with all the swimming things. Surely this can't be what you meant, Lord, because it doesn't make sense to me. Peter tried to place his own image on God, thinking maybe he'd get a God of his own design. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you, Peter declared. Now this wasn't what Jesus was hoping to hear from the man whose confession would be the bedrock upon which the foundation of his holy church would rest. Jesus had a rebuke of his own. Get behind me, Satan. That is, you are a stumbling block to me, Peter. And so your rejection of my crucifixion is all the more a stumbling block to others. You are not allowing the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts and your words, but rather you are under control of the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh. But Peter is not banished from the Lord's presence on account of this failing. For Jesus is patient with him just as he is patient with us. Peter not only continues to travel with Jesus, but now, just six days later, he is one of those select three who is allowed to accompany the Lord up the mountain. And here an incredible phenomenon takes place. As if all of the miracles up to now have not been sufficient evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is exactly who Peter has rightly confessed him to be, right here before their eyes they see a glimpse of God's glory. It is revealed to sinners, and yet they are not destroyed. In this, Peter sees once again. Though he still sees Jesus in his humanity, in flesh and blood like his own, Peter and the others now observe the Son with the glory of God upon Him. The glory of God even within Him. Yet it is not in just seeing this glory that further convinces these men of Jesus' divinity. 
It is also in witnessing the discussion that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah. You will recall that during His ministry, Jesus often used the phrase, the law and the prophets, when He spoke of the expressed and revealed will of God in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, and of the testimony that the ancient writings gave to His own being, His ministry and His mission. And now His disciples see tangible proof that indeed the Law and the Prophets as represented by Moses and Elijah. This Law and these Prophets do indeed support and testify to, God's, to Jesus' Godness, to His divinity. St. Matthew's Gospel account, which we use in this year's reading cycle, does not give us any details of that conversation. But St. Luke's does. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are discussing Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. The Greek word used there to describe this departure is his exodon, that is, his exodus. Even now, though, having seen God's glory revealed in Jesus at his transfiguration, Peter falls back into his old habit of wanting things his way. He wants not only to preserve and to sustain this glorious moment with Moses and Elijah and the transfigured Jesus, but he even wants to detain Jesus to prevent His departure for Jerusalem and the inevitable suffering and death that Peter now knows is coming. Let me build three shelters here, Lord. Let's stay here where it's safe and beautiful and glorious. Let's not go to Jerusalem where you're hated by the the religious authorities and will become a threat to the Roman authorities. And above all, Lord, please, please, let's steer clear of all of those terrible things of which you spoke last week. Peter, thinking with and speaking from his own mind and heart rather than a mind and a heart led by Jesus, is rebuked. Once again. This time, though, the rebuke is far less severe. Peter is still spoken out of turn, but this time at least he did not challenge God with his own ideas and desires. He merely made a suggestion about staying on the mountain, and he left the decision up to Jesus rather than demanding it. The rebuke that does come, though, does not come from Jesus, but it comes from the one who sent him. The Father speaks from heaven, validating Jesus and putting to rest any doubts about whether or not what the Lord says and does is in accordance with His will. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The Father here does not only just confirm Jesus' identity, He also provides confirmation and approval of His words and His actions. And although Peter and James and John all heard the Father's words that day, these words must have had a specially important meaning and intent for Peter. See here, Peter. You have confessed your teacher to be my son and to be the Christ. That comes with certain ramifications. It's not up to you, Peter, to decide just how he proceeds with that which I have given him to do. That's between father and son. 
And what's between Father and Son is that the Son is to be sacrificed by the Father to fulfill God's will. But unlike Abraham and Isaac, this time no angel will intervene to stop the execution. There is no other substitute. There is no ram caught in the thicket by its horns. This time there will be only the perfect lamb. Enmeshed in humanity's predicament by, his, by the devil's snare, and entrapped by his own love for his creatures. The perfect one must be sacrificed on yet another mountain so that we who are imperfect can go free. The kingdom of God must come so that you, Peter, and all who confess you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, can come and stay forever upon a greater, even more glorious mountain. My will shall be done, says the Father, so that I might make an eternal people, an eternal nation for Myself, and so that they may enjoy not just their daily bread, but the greater eternal banquet. Take a lesson from the Law and the Prophets, Peter. You see Moses and Elijah there? They are talking to My Son about His death, but they are not sad. They have joy and peace. The joy and peace that you want to extend on this mountain, Peter, they are a temporary thing. But that joy and peace which will come from that great atoning sacrifice never ends. Moses and Elijah, they see the day that the Lord has made. It is the day of crucifixion. They and all the prophets see it and they rejoice. It is the promise of Jesus' exodus at Jerusalem that makes it good that you are here, Peter, here on this mountain. Indeed, it is that coming departure, that death, that is the only thing that makes it possible for you to stand in God's glorious and holy presence and to not be destroyed. Therefore, Peter, listen to my son. Hear it and see it our way. Not your own way, our way. His words are my own words. He is obedient to the end. Our will is fulfilled. He lays down his life of his own accord, and he will pick it back up again. In him my righteous wrath will be appeased. And through that, you, Peter, and many, many others will be made mine, my beloved once again. And, this, and with this revelation and this rebuke and, yes, this Gospel, Peter and James and John are prepared for the mystery to come. They too can set their faces toward Jerusalem and beyond. In the context of the church year, this day of transfiguration of Jesus serves a similar purpose for us. Ash Wednesday is almost upon us and next Sunday is the first of Lent. There will be 46 days until Easter. The cross of Jesus and what lies beyond that cross are our strength for this Lenten fast, for the days of contemplation and the days of denial ahead of us. The trouble is, our contemplations are not too often of the things of God, but most frequently of the things of men. Our denial is not the denial of sin, not the rejection of temptation, but the denial of God's divine right to be the ruler of all things including our thoughts and our words and our deeds. 
We question his word and we try to make it, we try to make him even, conform to our ideas, our wishes, and our desires. Count if you can just the times in this past week that you have been caught in wishing and hoping that God and that others would conform to your expectations. Not just the times that you've consciously caught yourself doing it, but look back for a minute. Consider your complaints, your frustrations, your aggravations. Repent of your tendency to want to reshape your environment and those around you to get your way. Repent of your resentment that creation and creatures are not made in your image. They're not crafted in your own selfish let there be. Repent that your human heart, like everyone that has come before and everyone that will follow, finds the idea that God's will supersedes your own will to be something so foreign to its very nature. But rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus took upon Himself something that was foreign to Him also. That which was not His, namely your sin and your guilt. He who knew no sin became sin for you. He kept the law. Not only that formal law given through Moses, but also that law of the conscience given to all mankind through Adam. And He kept that law without fault. Even so, Jesus allows the law to do to Him what it should have done to us. We who should have been crushed eternally are now only crushed by the law until we turn in repentance to Jesus. For He has taken the crushing burden of the law upon Himself, and in His death, He falls headlong upon the wicked serpent, crushing His head forever. Now there is no one left to accuse you. The law has been spent. The devil's ledger has been erased. Christ the Lord, the Son of the living God, took what was yours. He gives you what is His. His life. His innocence. His very name. His righteousness. His royal pedigree. His priestly garments. His body and blood. You, by divine declaration, by perfect proclamation, by blessed exchange, are made clean. If this man Jesus the one who has given his life for you is the Father's Son, then we too shall be made the Father's children. If the Father is well pleased in the Word made flesh, in the one who consecrated all waters in his baptism at the Jordan, then he will be well pleased with we who are of the flesh, but who have been made different through water and Word. Soon you shall stand as Moses and Elijah already do, your body shall be transfigured also. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul writes. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That will be then. This is now. 
Yet by grace, we have already seen with the eyes of faith that Moses and Elijah had long before Christ's incarnation, we have seen the vision of that which is to come. We hope and we trust in that which lies beyond the grave. And while we wait, ever eager for that day, we do not sit idly by in booths on mountains. We preach Christ crucified for the glory of God and for the love of our neighbor. For Christ was lifted up upon that shameful tree to draw all people to Himself. The cross may still be offensive, but it is no longer shameful. It too has been redeemed. Upon it, we see God according to His mercy. We see Christ as Christ wants Himself to be seen. And it is in accordance with this that we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ As St. Paul says, by receiving that which was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, that which was nailed to the tree and then laid in the grave, and that which rose again from the dead. For those with the eyes of faith to see it, the bread that we bless is transfigured for us. It is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the medicine of immortality, the foretaste of the feast to come, the banquet that never ends. That which was fastened to an instrument of death by cruel nails has now become the instrument of life for you. It is real food and real drink, sustenance for you for the journey of Lent, nourishment for the wanderings in this wilderness of life. Yes, it is food for the soul and it is strength for the day. It transfigures those who receive it into saints of God, those who are loved by Him, precious in His sight, united both to Him and in Him. O Christian, who then can stand against you? On account of the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Father counts you as beloved. With you He is well pleased. For Jesus' sake, amen.